He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. It's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. We'll start this time with Case. Kyle, I think you were the one, or you or James were the one that turned me on to a movie that got me thinking about actors. And actors that have memorable deaths. <laughs> When I was a kid, if I saw a memorable death by one of these actors, I just assumed they were dead in real life. Because I was watching the Predator movies lately because of the movie Prey that you guys were saying how good it was, which it was. Mm-hmm. Anytime I see Carl Weathers, I'm always like, he died <laughs> because of both Rocky Four and the Predator. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he dies hard in both of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, Happy Gilmore. I must break <laughs> Yeah, Happy Gilmore is a funny one, but the other two is like very dramatic. I just feel bad because I'm sitting over laughing at Chubbs dying from falling out a window because yeah. he saw an alligator Because <laughs> he got a gift. <laughs> yeah. You killed the golf legend. <laughs> Rigby. The time this episode airs, it'll be football season officially. It'll also still be a heat wave in Southern California. We're We're getting it bad right now, but... Considering we have pretty good weather all year round, we got to suffer sometimes, right? I don't want to hear it. As a Minnesotan, I need to uh, address the fact that I am no longer aware that professional sports exist. <laughs> this is all news to me, Rigby. Yeah. Well, James, speaking of. Unfortunately, I had to miss last time. Pretty hectic life at the moment. I got, obviously, the brand new baby, Kristen Shaw Jr., and... Out of nowhere, we had a major mold issue at my house, so I've been like semi-homeless, semi-traveling gypsy. And then grad school, final semester started up, so it's been a little hectic, but that brings me to this point. It has exponentially increased the amount of hair that's been falling out of my head. And so I will say it on this recording, but I will deny it later if it works, but the amount of PEDs I am taking to maintain my hair is remarkable. And if it works, I'm going to pretend it's genetics and I wasn't doing it. But at the moment, I'm taking like a Magic Johnson cocktail of vitamins to keep this shit together. The rest of us are getting gray hair. You're just, the hair is just falling out of your head. Not great. I had grays for a little while, but I get them like poly walnuts, like on the side. And since I rock a fade, you can't really see them. Me too. But the crown was starting to form. And so when I inevitably have like beautiful Keanu hair, I'm going to pretend that I didn't take any of the drugs I'm currently taking. Hey, I think it makes baseball better. So I can only imagine what it's doing for you. Bro, and my, the slugging percentage I have in softball has skyrocketed. <laughs> I'm here to remind everybody the saga of our Chris and Shaw episode. Craig and I got into watching a lot of Last Man on Earth and I finished it the other night. Finally got to the end of season four, episode 18. I ended up watching a Zoom with all of them during COVID, which is hilarious years later. Very ironic. Literally like Will Forte, you were so prophetic for writing this back then. And I'm so angry. I never got to see what happened after they ran into all of the people and the uh, orange trees and the goats. So Sam Phillips was supposed to be here with us as our guest. 
He was previously with us for the Dakota Fanning episode, and he unfortunately had to back out about two days before recording. Family stuff got in the way. He desperately wanted to be here. He told me via text that he rewatched all of the Underworld movies and feels like a waste that he watched all of those and couldn't talk about them. But <laughs> such is the uh, reality of adult scheduling. So we will not have Sam with us. It's just the four of us, but we'll have ourselves a great conversation regardless. All right. Uh, birthdays, September 8th. Rigby, what do we got? First up, Mr. David Arquette. Best known as Officer Doofy in Scary Movie. That's sad that he's best known as that. He's got to be like 60. I'll go 60. The star of Eight-Legged Freaks has to be 54. I'm going to split the middle, 58. Uh, you all overshot on this one. He's turning 51. Oh, sorry, David. Wow. I was uh, I was surprised at because Scream was almost Scream was almost 30 years ago. Scream was 96. So that was... 26 years ago. Oh, so he was young, young when that... Yeah, the fact that he did that when he was... He would have been 25 is really impressive. Okay, sorry, David. Our man. Next up, Martin Freeman. Got a quite quite the resume for himself in the Sherlock Holmes movies, the Hobbit movies, as well as some Marvel pictures. And I find him to be very talented. He's also in the British version of The Office. Also in that uh, Australian movie we watched a couple years ago, James, that we really like. Uh, what was it called? Cargo. Cargo. Yeah, he's excellent in that movie. Yeah, that movie rocked. He's a good he's a good actor. I like him. Was he in a season of Fargo? Yeah, he was in the first one of Fargo. Okay. He played uh Lester Nygaard. Ooh. He'll be in the upcoming Black Panther film because he plays a role in the Black Panther universe. So that that'll be fun too. Oh yeah, he's the colonizer. Uh-huh. Or at least that's the joke they make at his expense. He's like a good dude. I'm gonna think Martin's probably in his forties, so I'm gonna say forty four. Fifty five. Forty eight. He's also turning fifty one. Hey. Oh, James Wentz. Trick question. So, James, you get that one. Someone who's seemingly been around a long time. Yeah. Put in quite a career for himself. So, yeah, 51 is uh, got a good thing going. Last up, someone who's pretty much disappeared from the spotlight, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. ATT. <laughs> Known best for his role as one of the sons in Home Improvement. I just I did some research, and it looked like in 2021... Someone snapped a picture of him walking his dogs, and that was the first time he'd been really seen in public in almost 10 years. So he's really not a part of Hollywood anymore, and he's really kind of disappeared from the spotlight. He probably made that young actor money and said, fuck it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he was a heartthrob of all heartthrobs for for young girls our age. Uh He was like the guy growing up. 36. He's got to be our age. I bet he's like two years older than than us, James. I'm going to say he's 35. I bet he was younger looking than he was when he filmed. I'm going 38. Oh, James. Snuck in at the last second. He's turning 41. Whoa. Oh, wow. Dude, okay. So he's got a baby face. Oh, he was young Simba in The Lion King, too. Things I did not know till this moment. Yes, he was was in The Lion King. That's it. Happy birthday to all those fools. We're here at episode 70. We are collecting social security and doing another episode. The actors that we threw onto the wheel for episode 70 were Claire Forlani, James McAvoy, Bill Pullman, Natalie Portman, and none of those matter, at least until the next time they pop on the the wheel, because the wheel chose Michael Sheen. Michael has 96 credits on the screen, also has a long, long career on the stage. His, His credits are probably more like 100 25, 130, 135 when it's all said and done. 
So the guy's been pretty busy in his time in entertainment. So let's dig in a little bit into his career. But before we do that, we're going to see if we can outstump James with his Fast and Furious trivia. I'm going to read off three facts here. Two of them are going to be true about the man of the hour, Michael Sheen. And one of them is not going to be true, but will be true about one of the many cast members of the Fast and Furious franchise. Guys, you're going to guess which one. Here we go. Fact number one, he was raised in Port Talbot, a Welsh town of less than 36,000 people that has, despite its size, famously produced the actors Richard Burton and Anthony Hopkins. Fact number two, he's an avid soccer player and had previously been the spokesman for the 1994 World Cup. Fact number three, in 2021, he announced that he'd be giving all of his future earnings to charities, declaring himself a not-for-profit actor. Mm. Ooh, that's good, James. You could sneak a Vin Diesel fact past us, because that, that third one is 100% Vin Diesel. And I don't <laughs> actually know that, but I could see him doing something like that. Or The Rock. One of those two. So that would be Mike. Yeah, after they make a cool billion, they're like... I'm going to donate to charity now. Be like, thanks, man. I appreciate all, all, the, all the good you've done. <laughs> Michael Sheen's riches aren't in money. It's in women that he dates. So he can't give that away. The World Cup was in 94. It was in the United States. So I'm going to go with that as the lie because I don't think that would have been him. But I just don't know who from the Fast and Furious franchise that would have been the spokesperson. Who was even popular around then? Ludacris. Yeah, I'll go Ludacris as the 94, uh, 94 World Cup spokesman. Everyone knows when they think soccer, they think Ludacris. Don't get that guy on the pitch. I'll go number one. I'm going to go and say that Jason Statham was born in a small Welsh town and then moved to England when he was a lad. So we got three guesses for all three uh, answers here. So I will start with the first one. Uh, so he is from Port Talbot. It's a Welsh town, tiny little town, actually smaller than um, most of the suburbs that we are from. So I tried to find a city that is the exact same size as this town. It's actually Panama City, Florida, which is the 876th largest city in the U.S. Despite how small it is, a spring break town produced three classically trained, very successful actors. I thought that was pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Fact number three, he in fact did say he's giving all his future earnings uh, to charities, declaring himself a not-for-profit actor. He is his entire life been heavily involved in philanthropic work and has a net worth that's just over uh, $15 million. And once he got to that level, he made that announcement and, because he's with countless organizations, I won't read them all off, but I was really impressed to see that. And not up to a billionaire, you know, like The Rock, but someone who has realized like, you know what, I don't think I need more than what I currently have. So this is a fun job. I can live off this and I'll help others out. I really, really respect that move. Totally. Sheen actually is a really talented soccer player. He was offered a place on Arsenal's youth team when he was 12. Uh, but his family was unwilling to relocate because they weren't well off enough. And, you know, you kind of have to be like a one in a million shot to make it there. He later said he was grateful his parents' decision uh, because he doesn't believe he would have been able to play professionally. So that fact is not true about him, but is in fact true about 
And I think this is very funny based on whose birthday you were just mentioning, but Zachary Ty Bryan, star of Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, also known as Brad from Home Improvement, Jonathan Taylor Thomas's <laughs> older brother. Wow. <laughs> That's hilarious. What a small world. He's like the douchebag in Tokyo Drift, isn't he? He's like, yeah, he bets his guy. girlfriend in the opening yeah. scene. That's right. Good job, James. Case, tell us a little bit about Michael Sheen's snapshot and box office history. Obviously, does very well on the international rank when we're comparing him to all actors on international earnings. He ranks 11 out of 70, right? So it's pretty damn good. Pretty good. His box office profile is very basic. He is right in the middle of about every topic we have. He does rank 11th in total box office. But when you start plugging in some of those numbers from the Twilight movies, from the Alice in Wonderland, he's crafted a pretty good movie resume to kind of check all boxes and, and make sure that he does well. He has been in a lot of movies that have lost money, which is offset by that. And I couldn't figure out how much money this movie lost. But James, you'll be happy to know that he was part of the movie Jesus Henry Christ, which only world grossed 20 grand. So we could we can do some things with 20 grand, right? With Tony Collette in that one. Yep. I'd taken another show note. So now it has been reintroduced. I love it. And then if we want to go even further, he was in, a, in the movie Gospel of Us, which brought in a cool 32 grand. We'll talk about that one. You get a 2006 GMC Terrain SLT, fully loaded. That's a pretty good deal. That's a nice car. So you're telling me we could actually get a his and hers. I don't, I don't <laughs> mind it, to be honest. His star meter's 34th at the time of recording. This one surprised me. 42nd in critic ranking. I would have thought he would have ranked a little bit higher. 24th in fan ranking. 40th and 22nd in two different box office rankings, which overall puts him at number 30. 30 of 70. 30 of 70. He's tied with Rebecca Hall, and he is just ahead of William Hurt. Hurt Daddy. So his Frost Nixon co-star sharing the same box office profile. Got it. And we'll get into it. Do it. Thanks, Case. Yeah, man. As opposed to like Kristen Shaw, where there wasn't a ton about her early life last week that I got into. There's a lot. Like Michael Sheen's Wikipedia is popping. And so I, I tried to narrow it down to what I thought was probably the most important stuff here. So number one, as James mentioned, born in Wales, small town, comes from a very theatrical family. In fact, his dad made a living as a Jack Nicholson lookalike, which is an interesting trade to get into. As a theater actor professional, he got into theater when he was pretty young. So he started at the W. Glamorgan Youth Theater and National Youth Theater of Wales. And all that early theater work growing up led him to move to London to train at RADA, which is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, in 1988, where, you know, he probably got some pretty high-level theater training and how to be really good at this, yeah. which led him to actually getting the Lawrence Olivier Bursary Award for one of his performances in his second year when he was at RADA. He graduated in 91, but got the award his second year as a sophomore. So he was already winning some pretty big-time awards while he was still in, at university. I think it's probably pretty motivating to get into theater when, one, you come from a theater family, but two, you're from like such a tiny town and that has produced, you know, like the the guy who's been nominated for like seven Academy Awards and was married to Liz Taylor and then Hannibal Lecter. You know, like there's not, not too many famous people, but the ones who are, are in this craft. I'd be motivated to to get into it as well. Talented guy. 
91 was his first theater role in When She Danced. This kind of led him towards a lot of work on like the London West End, especially here in the 90s, um, that we'll kind of gloss over a little bit. But uh, in 92, he performed in Romeo Juliet, and he got a Men Theater Award. And one of the critics who attended one of his performances called him in a review the most exciting young actor of his generation. Wow. Which is pretty high praise the year after you graduate from university, starting this whole theater world. And we know how critics love to throw around praise. <laughs> Big like gig was in Mystery Gallo Glass. He played Joe in three episodes in 93, which is readily available on YouTube. People can check it out if they want to. He does a couple other TV spots there in the early 90s. Uh, the first movie he did, technically the first movie he filmed was Mary Riley, but the first movie that he was produced and released was Othello. What is that, Lodovico? Probably. The spirit of Warren is here to haunt me, so I'm not even going to try it, because he would rip. <laughs> if, it's a, if it's Othello. Lodovico? Yeah, I was going to say, would it be Lodovico? Great question. Case, you want to live on the record? You're more than welcome. We can keep that in. Well, I just want to reach out and have anybody who knows, go ahead and email us at monstersatthemovies at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram. Months at the movies. Look at Case. He's <laughs> auditioning for the episode I can't make to be the host. That's what he's doing. <laughs> but 95 is a big year because this is the year he meets and starts to date Kate Beckdale. This man, we're going to talk about the, the females he dated throughout his adult life. But it started with Kate Beckinsale in the mid-90s. They met in a stage production and they dated for eight years and had a daughter in 1999. I wonder what, what about her caught his eye because she's... <laughs> Fairly, fairly plain, average. right? If pretty I'm thinking average. of the person. Pretty average. She's up there with Blake Lively as just being really just not attractive at all. <laughs> Red carpet and stuff. When I studied abroad, what I could tell you is everyone in London, very fashionable. The level of attractiveness is nowhere close to the common American city. And so I'm assuming Kate Beckinsale looked like a fucking alien over there. <laughs> assuming it was like an actual angel on earth <laughs> this disheveled king that is michael sheen just finding all of the females attracted to him i don't know how he does it it goes to show you if you're charming a, a charming nice person you know you could go pretty far in life you know being being a nice person really helps that's true and a $15 million net worth. Well, now. Well, remember, all these other women <laughs> yeah. came before the net worth thing. You know what I mean? This is him, exciting young actor of his generation. That's all it was, just promise and potential. We'll reference her again here in a second because that relationship will come back into the fold. But before that, Mary Riley played Bradshaw in 1996, a movie about Jekyll and Hyde, starring Julia Roberts and John Malkovich. This is his first of many different movies with Stephen Freer, who did all of the Tony Blair appearances we'll talk about shortly. But he, he's got a smaller role in this one. But it was interesting to watch him work alongside some, uh, some other heavyweights at that time in the mid-90s. 97, he played a small role as Robbie in the movie Wild, about Oscar Wilde. So you start to see this trend of him playing characters in films about real-life humans real people. In this case, he didn't play the title character, but that's going to come up quite a bit. What's really interesting, in 1998, very early in his career, he d he decided to find found a production company for playwrights. Most of the actors we cover will start their production companies 20 to 30 years into their career. I mean, he's uh, seven years out, out of 
graduating and is creating a production company specifically for playwrights. Pretty cool. That's some foresight and some business acumen early on. From my understanding, he really wasn't discovered by American audiences until his role in uh, stage production of Amadeus in 1999. That was the first time that American audiences over on the Broadway side actually got a chance to to see him. Because before he had just been over in London, a lot of uh, on the stage. So this is his kind of first exposure to a, a bigger, a much bigger international audience. During this time on the stage, this man had been nominated for 13 separate awards for his theater work and had won three of those awards. Wow. 10 years into his career. So, I mean, he, a highly successful stage actor right out of the gate. Yeah, it makes sense when you, when you think about his acting style. It fits with a lot of the other actors that we've looked at that had prominent stage careers before they took off on the screen. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about a lot of stuff so far, but a lot of it has been theater and some TV, not a lot of like big time TV movie roles, which is why we haven't done a review yet. The last movie I'll mention here before we get into a review is The Four Feathers from 02. They play Trench, uh, one of the British officers in the film. If we're going to talk big first major roles, his role as Colin in Heartland certainly qualifies for first major role. And James has it. Heartland came out in, what was it, 2001? Is that correct? 0102, yeah. Somewhere yes. in there. Depends where you look. And so it has a 60% critic score and a 79% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. For his first major role, he is far and away the star of this movie. He's the main character. He's in almost every single scene. And so that goes a long way to show you that they had a lot of faith in him to put this movie together. Michael Sheen's character kind of leads like a happy, quiet life. He's kind of portrayed as like a simple guy. He owns this tiny little newsstand. Um, he, him and his wife live in a tiny little apartment. You know, they have a couple little fish. He plays on a darts team. Uh, and then he finds out that his wife is cheating on him with the actual captain of the darts team, who is this cop. And the cop actually pretends that uh, Sheen was abusive to her because once they get caught, he realizes like, oh, wow, everyone thinks I'm a dick for sleeping with Sheen's wife. Uh, so I'm going to make it seem like he's the bad guy. And he kind of kicks him off the team. That's not a spoiler for the movie because that all kind of happens in like the first 10 minutes. And then from there, the movie is kind of like a really charming kind of road trip movie is how I would describe it. It's like it is nice and thoughtful and it's kind of about this man who is enjoying life more. And so the way the plot is going is the, the darts team is going to this championship that's in Blackpool, uh, which is called like the Vegas of the North of England. And since he wanted to go, but now he's off the team, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go anyway. I'm not going to let this kind of derail my life. And I'm just going to take my moped up there. And on his way there, he, it's just like he meets more and more characters and every character he meets is kind of quirky and kind of funny, but still like a good person. And so it's, it's one of those movies that's charming and kind of life affirming. It's got a, a little bit of a bittersweet ending, but I was pleasantly surprised. It film, maybe it's because it's 2001. It kind of looked a little like grainy that might've been intentional. Um, and so I was like, oh, this might suck. It's got like a made for TV movie feel to it. And then when it started, it was actually, uh, I think pretty well done. And I think he did great at it. He, he, his like, kind of bumbling idiot, but like really likable persona comes through. And you could see that it really undresses a lot of the characters that he meets on the road when they're like 
hey, who's this stranger? And it's like, actually, I kind of feel bad for him. Like, let's bring him under our wing and we'll talk with him and hang out. And so I, I thought it was pretty good. I agree with you, James. I thought there was there was a lot of heart to the story. The road trip part was just really cool to watch because you see him interact with a variety of people that impact him in all these really interesting ways. Like, for example, Mark Strong plays a character and that's like almost had hair. It was crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's not taking the PEDs I'm taking. <laughs> when I saw it, I was like, oh shit, that's Mark Strong. <laughs> and and you expect him to be, you know, this intimidating guy because he usually plays an intimidating guy. Uh, and he kind of starts off that way. And then he's like, nah, he like treats him like he's like his little brother. He's like, why don't you hang out with us, dude? And like, you know, we'll grab a beer. And- he keeps lying about his relationship, keeps telling people he's happily married when he just found his wife cheating on him. And, yeah. And like, they're starting to catch on to that. And they're like, why don't you tell us why you're really here, man? And he's like, oh, well, you know, uh, and the story changes a little bit. Yep. We talked about Torturo like doing all like these like non-athletic sport movies and he didn't do a darts movie. By golly, it's an actual darts movie. It's a legitimate darts movie. I didn't know it existed, but it exists. That is a legit darts tournament involved. It's a main part of the story. I would highly recommend if people are listening, check out Heartlands. You can get it on Prime, you can get it on Apple TV Plus or wherever you want to spend your $4 to rent it, but I think it's well worth the watch. Forgot to mention, we're already in the millennium, so we're two years into that already. A couple years before our, our next reviews, which are back-to-back, the big one is in 03, and this is the Kate Beckinsale tie-in. So Kate Beckinsale is obviously the main focal point of the Underworld films series. At the time, was dating Michael Sheen and brought him, convinced the director to hire Michael Sheen to be in the movies and play Lucian, which we won't talk much about because we've got a review coming up. The thing I do want to note is that they were dating when they started this project together, Beckinsale and Sheen. And then Beckinsale essentially fell for the director, Len Wiseman, on set. Which is fucking brutal. Convinced him to let Sheen join the project and then started dating the director. Not great, Bob. And then you're like on set and you see that and you're like, nah, I'm I'm probably just overthinking this. I'm probably, you know. And they have a three-year-old at the time too, so it's not like they're just like dating casually. They're parents. They're co-parenting. Ooh. Probably a little insecure. You know, she's hot. I'm thinking too much into it. And nope, you you were right. You were 100% correct. (laughs) Follow your instincts. That was interesting to read about. But the other piece in 03 is he starts his his three movie run with Stephen Frears as Tony Blair. And this time in The Deal, which many would consider kind of his breakthrough breakout role. But we'll get more into the, the Tony Blair character in two of the other movies when we get there. 03, again, noting a different type of character that he played. He was in a movie called Bright Young Things. He played Miles, a a gay aristocrat. So a very flamboyant character, very different. Like you watched him in Heartlands be like this droll, aimless character. And then flips it completely to play this very flamboyant gay aristocrat in Bright Young Things. So starting to see some of that range come out here. And right after playing the British Prime Minister, Tony Blair. There's a lot going on here in early 2000. 2003, he's in Timeline. He plays Lord Oliver, a time travel movie with Paul Walker, Neil McDonough, David Thewlis, Gerard Butler, Billy Connolly, a loaded cast for a movie that is not good. Most time travel movies are not good. Except for Bill and Ted's. That's just one genre that everyone seems to just kind of hit and miss with, I feel like. I didn't look at the ratings before I watched it, and I was like, 
feel like that was a three. And then I looked at it and the split's like 40, 20. And I was like, oh, I'm right in the sweet spot here. Vehemently disagree with Rigby's assessment of time travel movies. Give me some good ones. Uh, Back to the Future, ever heard of it? I'm talking about recent ones. Whole movie's about time travel. It's, it's in the title. Rigby wasn't talking about documentaries. He was talking about recent time travel. <laughs> talking about recent ones. Not, obviously, Back to the Future set the, set the mold, no pun intended, James, sorry, for time travel movies. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Soon, Rigby. <laughs> I need a trigger warning next time. The whole concept in the movie is they're going back. They're all archaeologists, and they go back just to find and save their professor. And Michael Sheen plays Lord Oliver, basically <laughs> the main guy in charge of hating the French. And they're supposed to kill the daughter, and it leads to the French uprising. And But Gerard Butler's character falls for the, the young girl who's supposed to die in this pivotal historical moment. And so they're funking with the, the timeline. That's the concept. I just learned it's a Michael Crichton book. Didn't know that. And it's also, it was, the score was also composed by Jerry Goldsmith, who's done some of the more famous scores in movie history. So that's <laughs> it's a shame that they're both associated with that. And Gerard Butler kicked a guy down a pit. That's perfect. <laughs> I don't know how this didn't hit. I mean, it's got a lot of star power in it too. So it's yeah, it does. You you would think it would it would hit. He is perfectly fine as Lord Oliver. He is not the problem of this movie. He's sadistic and he's an asshole. So he nails that part. But the I think it's just the overall storyline. People were not fans of it on the rating side. Oh four, he played Mark in Dirty Filthy Love, kind of his his first BAFTA nomination, which you know as big as he is in the British scene, you would expect that he's going to get some BAFTA noms along the way. But his first one, a, a story where he has Tourette's and, you know, anytime somebody plays a character that has Tourette's, you're going to get judged with all the eyes possible. And I have to say, I think he does a solid job. I think he earned his BAFTA nom in this. Did he go full Tourette's? You never go full Tourette's. <laughs> No, he doesn't. I th- this is not the first time he's played uh, a character with like, some kind of disorder, which I'll talk about another one. But you get some of that. Again, I don't know how to fully judge those types of roles because I'm yeah. like, I don't know. I'm not an expert in this and knowing if it was authentic or not. It's not Amy Poehler and Deuce Bigelow. I don't want anything to do with it. The greatest Tourette's performance in film history right there. It's probably easier to judge if, if you know somebody who has that as opposed to... Us who knows that performance and like that's probably what it's like. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this: I give him a lot of credit for taking on multiple roles just like this. He is he's shown time and time again in his career he won't, he doesn't just play it safe with the types of characters he plays, and he takes bold yeah. stabs at characters. And this is definitely one of them playing a character with Tourette's because you could turn that into a major caricature and not tell the story authentically. So yeah, I give him credit. It's got decent reviews as a film too. It's just a TV movie. So it's got that TV movie production. But more dating life updates. He starts dating Lorraine Stewart in 04, a very attractive ballet dancer. Dates her for six years, 2004 to 2010. So bouncing back a year plus later from Kate Beckinsale to settle for a gorgeous ballet dancer. Awful. Terrible. Poor guy. Really, really awful. Can't get a break. It's the accent. Some guys can't catch a break. I'll tell you what charismatic dude i could see i mean you see in his roles you know he's probably got a lot of charisma so Mm -hmm. he's he's doing it kingdom of heaven he played the priest in 2005 and i remember this movie being massive and i couldn't tell you why yeah i have since watched this movie since 2005 and i remember it being 
Very ho hum. Yeah. This didn't stand out at all. It's a Ridley Scott movie, so it's mm-hmm. gonna be it's gonna be big no matter what. And I just yeah, I don't I think it kinda came and went. Mm-hmm. Liam Neeson, David Thewlis, Ava Green, Martin Sheen. Pretty good cast there. Yeah, for sure. And then the last one here before we get into our next review is the title role in Kenneth Williams' Fantabulosa, uh, a role that got him another BAFTA nom, a, a character that, from my understanding, this is a, a based on a, a com- British comedian, I believe, and a very unique mannerism-wise British comedian that he plays. Interesting. I started watching it today. Couldn't really get into it. I think it was just, it's a BBC production, and... Uh, the production on YouTube's not great, but searching around, this Kenneth Williams guy is a not like a super famous comedian, but unique enough to stand out to where people really dug his style. So, but again, playing another real life character, another biopic. They're playing Tony Blair, Kenneth Williams. He's playing these high profile British personalities in their biopic related features. And he got a BAFTA nom for this, too. That's very cool. All right, so the sequel to the Underworld film, Underworld Evolution, is our lowest critic score. And Rigby has it. Yeah, I don't have much, unfortunately. So I didn't watch this because it wasn't streaming anywhere. And I was actually just on his Wikipedia page, and it says he only appears in this via archive footage. Is that right? Very possible. So I don't have much. I don't have much review. Cause I, guess, <laughs> I guess the scenes that I watched on YouTube were from the first one, so... From what I from what I could gather is he plays uh, a lichen, which is like a werewolf. Forty five million dollar budget, one hundred thirteen million dollar box office. So pretty good return, and I think the first one probably did the same. I was I always got these and um, the Resident Evil movies mixed up. I don't know why. I was just gonna say because I, I thought it was the Resident Evil movies. I was like, yeah, you'd have to use archive footage. There's no fucking way I'm getting back on set with that asshole. it did score a 17 on rotten tomatoes based on 104 reviews the site's consensus says that it's a visual and it's a visual assault on the senses this vampire werewolf sequel makes a lot of noise and features a heavy-handed overly convoluted story didn't wasn't able to watch the first one and wasn't able to watch this one he also makes an appearance (laughs) in the 2009 underworld which we'll talk about uh yeah not much i don't think sheen really had much in this except for uh for archival footage yeah, he plays a pretty major role in the first one. He's he's deemed the most feared and ruthless leader ever to rule the Lycan clan and the major instigator of the war between the two species. So he's a shit starter in the first movie is basically the best way to put it um, on the werewolf side. Mm-hmm. But he's also in the Twilight films. Yeah, he's 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 a baddie in this world on the werewolf side. Yeah. And James, you, you mentioned that he wouldn't come back to a movie that Len Weissman directed, but. He, I believe the 2009 one, he's like the main, he's the main character in it. And I don't think Len Weissman did that one. So maybe you might not be uh, far mistaken on that premise. If somebody stole Kate, if somebody stole Kate Beckinsale from me, I don't know if I'd want to ever talk to him again either though. So depends how big that check is, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> can I tolerate this person for 5 million? Right. So this was probably trying to answer maybe the resident evil movies. Yeah. And I mean, this obviously blew up Kate Beckinsale's profile like crazy mm-hmm. being in these movies. It accomplished that and everybody. Highest critic score bookends the lowest critic score. So the Lucian side of Underworld, that's a that's something that it that Sheen does get noticed for quite a bit, but highest critic score is probably the one that he probably wants to be known for a little bit more. And that is his role as Tony Blair in The Queen. Now Sam was supposed to cover this, but since he's not here, 
I'll step in and give a little bit of a review of this. Are you going to do this with a English accent? I could, we'll butcher the fuck out of it. So I will not. Give it a shot. At university. <laughs> no, because as soon as I try, I start wanting to speak like an Australian and that is very different. So I don't think that's going to work out very well. Uh, I, I'll just embarrass myself with my words, not with my accent. Um, but another BAFTA nom here. So we stockpile in the BAFTA noms in the Queen. Um, for those who haven't seen it, this is a follow-up to The Deal um, from 03. So this is three years later. Highest critic is because it's got a 97 from critics, a 76 from audiences. So it's a little bit of an audience gap film, but quite beloved on the audience side. And I think most of that's because of Helen Mirren, frankly, in her role as Queen Elizabeth II. So the, the film follows her character immediately after the death of Princess Diana. So basically, it's like five minutes of screen time, and then Princess Diana and her lover die in that car crash in Paris. They give you just enough to set up what's going on, and then, shocker, spoiler, Princess Diana doesn't survive that that car crash. This, this movie was nominated for six Oscars. It won one Oscar, and that was uh, Helen Mirren for Best Actress. It was nominated for Best Picture, so this is a big awards darling film. Uh, Sheen plays Tony Blair. As I'm watching the film, I don't, I'm not too familiar with Tony Blair's mannerisms. I did a little bit of a Google search, and they look similar, and their mannerisms are pretty alike. I know Sheen took some creative license to it, and I know, also know that Tony Blair said he did not watch. He never watched a full performance all the way through. He might watch clips. But he said it was weird for him to watch himself on screen because I, I think Sheen does a solid job at it. Um, but it's a huge deal to play the British prime minister. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like playing the American president in a movie, right? Like, that's a, that's a big deal unless it's a spoof. I feel like anytime you're, you're playing a real life character that's still alive, you have to have a little bit of it be your own. Or it just seems yeah. like you're imitating that person rather than mm-hmm. telling the story using that character as a vehicle. Right. And I, I think it says so much about his acting talent that he plays this character three times. Someone who in Britain is obviously so well known as a prime minister. Yeah. Cause a lot of, a lot of times, like if somebody plays Clinton or Bush or God forbid Trump, like it comes off as like super gimmicky. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, cause you just don't, you, you're so used to that person. You just don't buy their acting. Yeah. Um, and the fact that he, has continuously played this role, you know, three times over a seven year span is really, really impressive. Just, it just speaks to his acting ability and, and yeah. And his talent. I agree. That's one of those rare complimentary typecasting. Right. (laughs) Yes. And the acting, the acting in the queen is what makes it so good. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's James Cromwell, Helen Mirren or Sheen, the fact that Sheen is second build to probably the best performance that year by Helen Mirren, yeah, that's what makes the movie great. So he was awesome in this, in this role. Yeah, for those that haven't seen it, the, the story highlights how kind of Blair understood the pain the citizens were feeling after it happened and essentially convinces Queen Elizabeth II, played by Mirren, to make a public appearance and, and actually give a shit about Princess Diana's passing instead of hiding away in their royal dwelling and pretending like it didn't happen. Which made me think, is Tony Blair slash Michael Sheen the villain of this story? Because should Tony Blair just have let them crawl back into their hole and basically 
watch that whole monarchy just crumble in front of them? Like, would the world be better off had Tony Blair not done that and not consulted her to actually step out and save the the royal family's ass on that one? I that was something I pondered as I was watching. Interesting. Never thought of that one. Kyle, <laughs> uh, my movie later we'll be talking about alternate history, so yes. you might be onto something. <laughs> oh, resistance. I will say the live shots at the end of the movie from the funeral really, really drive home how much Princess Diana beloved like it. And I'm not somebody who gives a shit necessarily about the monarchy and British politics and things like the footage they bring in and how they integrate the actors into that footage goes to show how much of an impact that woman made. Because I was what? What did that happen? 97? 90, August 97. Yeah, I was in Tennessee at the time. I was nine. I remember where I was when that went down. I want to say it was like August 31st or something. So we might be coming up on the 25th anniversary of it right now. As we're recording this, it's 25 years ago today. Because right now it is August 31st in England. Yeah. That's so cool. If you had to ask me, Kyle, do you think this is a 97 film? I don't care enough about the story to say it is, but I will say it's very well crafted and the acting is very good. And Michael Sheen is extraordinary as Tony Blair. So I'm probably more in the 7, 76 audience range. But that's just because I, it's hard for me to get into this type of story. But I can recognize that it's, it's produced very on a quality level. Yeah, critics love British monarchy movies. Mm-hmm. One movie here between our, ne- our next review, and that is Blood Diamond, a film we mentioned a couple times now with Jaiman Hansu. This is his second appearance with Jaiman. He was also in Four Feathers with him. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, good call on that one. Good throwback. Yeah, he plays a diamond exec. He's not in this movie very much. He's only in a couple scenes. And even the scenes he's in, he doesn't really have many speaking parts. He's just kind of a visual. He just looks like an asshole, to be completely honest. I just can't get past uh, Leo's um, accent in this one. It's always, it's, it's something. It's funny, this movie with those two performances, I don't really remember much about Sheen in this, to be honest with you. Neither do I. He has like three scenes, and there's one scene where he's talking in the back of a car um, with Jaiman's character, because they're trying to negotiate, he's basically trying to negotiate to buy the diamonds so that that way they could take it off the market, because mm-hmm. trying to control price. I wonder if this was filmed before The Queen. In other words, that his his performance in The Queen probably earned him some bigger roles. And since oh, interesting, maybe this was filmed before. Maybe he just wasn't as big at the time. Maybe that does happen. That's true. There's a breakout role, and then you're like, oh, why would they take this side role? It's like, well, I filmed that like two years earlier. Yeah, a great question, Case. You're very curious. I like it. Well, that's going to take us the largest audience gap, and for <laughs> the second week in a row, the the two since I'm picking up an extra review, they just happen to be back to back. It's not planned, but. That is the chronological order. So largest audience gap in this case is a movie called Music Within. It's got a huge split, though. It's like the perfect audience gap movie. Audience is 78, critics 33. And I fall right in the middle in the five. So it's like the perfect audience gap film to review for an actor. Apparently, I had seen it before because I hadn't rated it in IMDb. I just didn't remember much of it. Another biopic where, he, where Michael Sheen's playing a real character, but he's not the focal point of the story. The focal point of the story is Ron Livingston, who you guys know best from Office Space, Yeah, I would imagine. He plays famous Richard Pimentel, who is famous for helping lead the charge of the ADA and helping the, co- the country combat the AIDS epidemic, in particular, helping the country and like the government and employers uh, enact accessibility changes that help disabled people. He's a 
big deal in that community because he's one of the main people that led the ADA coming to a, into effect in the 80s. So the whole movie is narrated by Ron Livingston's character, Richard Pimentel. <laughs> it starts on a really weird tone because it starts with his weird lucky birth after his mom had seven miscarriages, oh. which is just an interesting tone to start Yeah, a biopic on. He goes crazy. His dad is a chi- is Chinese and dies from an unfortunate soy sauce accident with a large can falling from the top of a from from the top of a shelf. I can't make this up. It's crazy. <laughs> like the first fifteen minutes are about all about that and like his adolescence. He's also at the time like thirty nine and is supposed to be playing a high school student who's trying to get into college. And it's hilarious seeing Ron Livingston try to pretend to be a high school student for like just a portion of the movie. Until he gets into like a military time, that was funny to watch. Is that done intentionally as like a joke, or were they really trying to pass him off as a high schooler? No, they were trying to pass him off because most of the uh-huh. movie is is about his adult life. So they really didn't do much to change his look and appearance. They didn't get like a younger actor. To, it was just him at thirty nine years old. Like he's a guy who has like a chronic five o'clock shadow too. So. <laughs> he got a full beard. Did he put a backwards hat on so he'd look young? <laughs> Hello, fellow kids. Steve Buscemi meme. They set this tone early on, like the, the first 10 minutes is all of this stuff is early life of him wanting to be a hero. That's like he said he wanted to be as a kid. He wanted to be a hero. He eventually joins the army. And while he's there, he gets injured and gets tinnitus. Do you guys know what tinnitus is? Yeah. Like you have the ringing in your ear constantly. Like you're deaf. You can kind of hear people, but you have a constant ringing. So the rest of the story there is him proving himself that he can graduate from college, build a social circle and be successful because people couldn't do any of those things he then spearheads this disability rights movement in the u.s sheen plays a character named art honeyman who is a high iq writer who suffers from cerebral palsy so you could see why i think people should watch this movie because again we talked about him playing a character a few movies ago that had tourette's now he's playing someone with cerebral palsy and obviously the most famous role i can think of with cerebral palsy would be DDL and uh, my left foot, the role that earned him an Oscar in 92. Yep. Yeah. I looked up on the Google, I looked up lists of like best and worst portrayals of cerebral palsy on television, and Sheen showed up on none of them. Interesting. None of them. Not good or bad. But there there are a list. There are lists. There are, there are lists. lists. He's got the mannerisms of it. I think he does fine. You know, having seen DDL and my left foot, it's hard to compare against those two, but I think Michael Sheen's pretty good in that i could at risk of being judged by someone listening from that uh community and telling me i'm vastly wrong i don't know i guess we'll find out the reviews are all over the place with this movie right and so i was trying to figure out like why i read a lot of reviews this is probably the most reviews i've ever read for a movie i've, I've reviewed before and the gist i got was that critics felt like it was a well-intentioned tv movie that was just low on drama and it's trying to balance his life and make it more dramatic than it actually was. And instead it is sacrificing telling the story of the actual impact that he made uh, in the lives of, of disabled folks. So I think that's why this movie has such a gap. It probably would have been a lot better. as just a documentary instead of trying to dramatize his life is just not that dramatic. They try to make it that way, but it really falls flat in that area. That's, again, bold choice to play someone with cerebral palsy because you know it's got to be spot on. Otherwise, you're going to get all the hate mail from people. Yeah. Uh, especially in the story of somebody who played such an integral role in creating access for folks with disability. I, I think 
performers had a lot more creative liberty in 2007 than they do now. They do. I agree. He probably couldn't have taken the same approach to that role as he as he would now. He's a very horny character in this movie. His character is t- talking to waitresses and it's like, get on, sit on my lap and I'll take you for a ride. I'm actually going to watch this. He talked me into it. Yeah, give it a scope. I think you'll probably fall right in the middle like I did. Yeah. I think it's worth watching, but they could have done it a lot better. 2008, this is the biggie. Frost Nixon. He plays David Frost, a movie with uh, Rebecca Hall and Sam Rockwell. And a role that got them a SAG Ensemble nomination. Yeah, and this is my favorite role of his. Um, job by he and Franklin Jella in this is just unbelievable. And again, it's based off a play, so you can tell that they've sunk himself into this into this role for so long that it just kind of comes easy for him. Huge fan of this movie. Love love his performance in it. The supporting cast is awesome too. Sam Rockwell, Oliver Platt, and obviously Kevin Bacon as uh, Nixon's right-hand man. All just fantastic. Can't say enough about this movie. Wholeheartedly agree. Love the movie, and it all comes down to him and Langella and that, that back and forth as, as their relationship grows. It's really fascinating to watch. Where I think this movie really turns is when Gene's portrayal of David Frost sort of turns into this uh, sarcastic, you know, entertainment celebrity style journalist, and he becomes super focused and, and ultimately wins the battle of wits between Nixon at the end with that awesome scene where he gets Nixon to admit, you know, it's not illegal if the president does it, <laughs> which obviously ended, you know, Nixon's, you know, c- sort of comeback tour. I've seen this movie before uh, when we did the Rockwell uh, episode, but I didn't know of this story before this movie. And what I found so fascinating is how they portrayed how kind of even though he was off-putting how like charming and guys guy nixon was to the point where like it threw them off their game when they first met him and they're like oh shit like he's he's not being this evil person we thought he was he's like just like a dude hanging out and and he's like i'm not gonna fucking shake his hand like i love that line Again, just very impressed with this movie for someone who knew nothing of the history of it. Well, the last Underworld check he got was in 2009. I'm kidding. He's probably got checks since then, but he the, he did the third Underworld Rise of the Lycans movie in 09 there. If he's going to be the king of the Lycans, it, I'm sure he played a big role in that one as well. But a movie I know Rigby really enjoys is 2009's The Damned United. He plays another real-life person, Brian Clough. Yeah, this story is fascinating. Obviously, he's a real-life soccer coach, like you mentioned, from the 70s. He led a small team called Derby County to prominence, and then he took over as coach for a much larger team called Leeds United, and it could not have gone worse. <laughs> it was disastrous, and you know he insulted the players, and nobody wanted him there, and so it's kind of like this Shakespearean sort of downfall where this made this decision to to move to higher pasture and it, it backfired tremendously, but a great movie. Brian Clough's a pretty big deal in Britain. If you, uh, if you haven't heard of him. Yep. I never heard of it or his story until I watched this movie and I could tell, I was like, Oh, that's why this movie has like an 80 plus rating from critics. Like this is a pretty beloved story culturally, Big good, cool cast too. Jim Broadbent, Timothy Spall, Cole Meany. I mean, that's a pretty solid cast alongside him, too. 2009 is when he enters. So he exits the Underworld series and enters the Twilight Saga and New Moon as Aro alongside Dakota Fanning. So this would have been 
the one Dakota Fanning crossover for Sam if he had made his return. Oh, yeah. So finishing off the 2000s, I thought this shocked me when I looked this up. In 2009, he was he was named GQ's Actor of the Year, and he was given the BAFTA for British Artist of the Year in 2010. Like, that's how big he was at the end of the 2000s. I was like, holy shit, I didn't... How do I not know more about this guy if this dude was owning the 2000s like this? Yeah. I guess I'm not British. So, you know, I wasn't into the British scene then, but still. I mean, there's, that's just a lot of really big projects there. But he's definitely in the uh, order of the British Empire. 2009. Yep. There you go. Yep. Same year. Big year. 2009. That's like, that's like his coup de grace. That's where you can't get any bigger for him. 2010, though, one of my favorite roles that I watched, and I've watched a lot with him, Unthinkable. He plays Steven, a, a, a role that Cam talked about and recommended to us at the end of the last episode. As you guys got to check out Unthinkable, the, this paced movie with Samuel L. Jackson, and he just won't, he's a terrorist who just won't tell them where the bombs are. And let me tell you, if you're not prepared for the torture scenes, boy, they will kick you straight in the nuts. I saw your text. I was like, all right, in between watching the baby and doing mold shit. And I was like, uh, let me just throw this on. I'm sitting there feeding my, you know, three and a half month old daughter. And all of a sudden Samuel Jackson whips out a scalpel and takes it to this dude's nutsack. And I was like, you know what? I'll just put the baby. I'll put the baby down. We don't got to watch this. now. <laughs> you can watch this later. Sheen's wife is standing in front and Samuel just decides to slit her throat right in front of him. Like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, I guess I got shit to do. We don't got to do this now. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of knew what they were going for once the torture scene start and the torture scene literally lasts the whole movie. So if you're not prepared for that, that is what's going to happen. But I did like Sheen's kind of portrayal of this fundamentalist. Like he's a true believer in the cause. And like, even when they think he's going to crack, it's just him getting to the next step of, you know, his terrorism beliefs. Yeah. It's pretty hardcore, especially to the scene at the end where Samuel L. Uh, is about to like basically murder two children because they can't get the door open because he thinks there's more than three bombs and you're just like holy shit man this movie is intense he sells it give him give him credit he sells it and stepping back from the torture over to maybe a different kind of torture Alice in Wonderland he plays the white rabbit I'm kidding <laughs> that's torture um, unless you hate Johnny Depp then maybe it is torture that's the Mad Hatter but he plays the white rabbit in two Alice in Wonderland films here. This movie puts him in rare air in our uh, box office grouping as this was a billion dollar earner. What? Yep. 1.03 billion with a B. Just cross. Is this Tim Burton? I think so. Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh my God. And Johnny Depp's kind of the indicator on that one. Is Johnny Depp quirky and unbearable? Because that's usually his go to for me now. <laughs> To be fair, that's kind of the concept of the Mad Hatter, so he's probably a good, yeah. a good hire for that. But yeah, I mean, I get it worked here; it didn't work in Willy Wonka. And then the third iteration of Tony Blair in the Special Relationship, 2010, a role that got him an Emmy nomination this time. He's great, but I got to give some credit to uh, Dennis Quaid in this. He's awesome as Bill Clinton. You've referenced him as Clinton before too. I didn't realize it was from this movie. Yeah, so this is an HBO movie, as you mentioned, sort of. But for some reason, I always thought that Blair's relationship with Bush was referred to as a special relationship, but I guess it was Clinton's too. Um, but either way, this movie is, it portrays the relationship between 97 and 2001, which was Clinton's second term. Different 
scenarios that they have to interact, whether it's the war in Northern Ireland, the war in Kosovo, uh, President Clinton's impeachment. It just shows it just shows how they, um, you know, the, the special allied relationship that our two countries have. How is Quaid's uh, Clinton accent? I don't think I didn't think it was that bad. And Hope Davis, I don't know if you know who that is. She oh, played yeah. Hillary. She's pretty good too. I could see that. Yeah, she was on the the wheel like in the first five episodes a long time ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that way back. Um, a little bit more uh, dating. T here. He dated Rachel McAdams starting in 2010 through 2013, and we'll talk about a movie here in a second they were in together. So I would, they, I'm gonna guess that they met set for midnight. That would make sense. One of my first celebrity crushes. I don't know if this adds points to his score or takes him away, but I am jealous. <laughs> Probably adds. I think I think it's ad, but I got to get over my jealousy first. Game, respect game, James. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. 30 Rock, four episodes of that, played Wesley in 2010. Not just Wesley. His name is Wesley Snipes in it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> He's a love interest of Liz. Okay. Yeah. Got it. The same year, he's in Tron Legacy as Caster slash Zeus. He doesn't have a huge role in this, but I'll tell you, when he gets on screen, he steals the scene, man. He His character flips, and then he gets screwed over by the end of the movie. But for a movie that's kind of dull at times, when he steps on screen, he's a very flamboyant, static character. And again, another one of those roles where I watched, I was like, man, he stole every every second he had on screen. Michael Sheen was the focal point. Not necessarily impressed with the movie, but impressed with his his character. Seems like every character, every actor we cover has one Woody Allen movie. And in his case, it was Midnight in Paris. He plays Paul, the uh, know-it-all guy who Rachel McAdams' character falls for by the end of the film. Yeah, he's hilarious in this. How ironic. You're right, you're right. He's a seductive master in this movie and in real life, right? Um, mm-hmm. He's hilarious in this because Owen Wilson's character is like miserable, and he's you know in Paris on this vacation with the, with uh, his wife's family, and this guy Paul is like this sort of know it all like tour guide, and he acts like he he basically just tries to impress Rachel McAdams with all these like history anecdotes of in Paris and stuff, and. He's not even right half the time about it. No. He just tries to act smart. And... No, have you seen it, Case? No, but I, he's describing the actions I would take. Yeah, that's why I'm laughing. It comes off as it comes off as very, very annoying, but very, very hilarious. So Michael Sheen is perfect for this role. So there's a time time travel element to this, Rigby, to kind of refute your point from earlier, where every night at midnight, Owen Wilson go meets at a certain place in Paris, and he gets picked up in a car, and he's taken back to the 1920s and he meets Ernest Hemingway, the Fitzgeralds. He meets all of these Picasso. He meets all these famous people and Corey Stoll plays Ernest Hemingway and his character. So much fun. Um, but that's, that's the dynamic. He'll come back from a night in midnight in Paris and he's out on this tour and, you know, Michael Sheen's trying to tell this story and about who he dated and he's talking about Picasso and Owen Wilson's like, no, actually, that's of a, a a sister of Picasso. He, I believe, he actually was painting her because he was angry at his ex at the time. Like all like normal shit that historians wouldn't know. He's like telling Michael Sheen he's wrong, but he, no one else knows that he's going back in time. <laughs> yeah. So they're like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Like, why are you upstaging our guide?" It's a really good movie. It's so funny. I always thought Owen Wilson was kind of miscast in this, but I think on rewatch. I think he's 
he's pretty good for it. Yeah, really he's is. like a hopeless romantic. Yep. I think it fits for him. Whimsical. Yep. Case, you got to watch Midnight in Paris at one point. That's that's your homework. I think you'd enjoy it. As you guys are talking about it, it does sound familiar to me. It's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and then the last couple things before our last review is the uh, the other Twilight movie. And he did an episode of Doctor Who, which I don't think we've covered anybody else up through 70 episodes. It's been on Doctor Who, maybe one other point. But that's like the big longest running show in entertainment history, if I'm not mistaken. But largest critic gap, saving the best for last year case, is Resistance from 2011. Resistance is a 2011, I would call it a alternative dramatic anti-war movie it's based on the premise of what if germany had had succeeded in their invasions of england and then continue to move throughout the rest of europe first of all this is one of the most simple plots of a movie that we've covered if you look it up on wikipedia the summary of the movie is four paragraphs and the movie is pretty simple as well. The gist of it is these four women wake up in their village and all the men have left. And we're really never told why. We just know that they're gone. And shortly after them leaving, maybe a week or two after they've left, a small detachment of the German army comes to their village and, and they're like their farming village looking for something that we eventually find out is it's either a map or a painting. They kind of go in between the two of them. I enjoyed watching this movie, but it required me to pay quite a bit of attention because a lot of the movie they're speaking either German or Welsh, right? And then they kind of bring the audience back into it with, by going into English and so you're really having to pay quite a bit of attention to, to keep things going. It's not a major Michael Sheen role, which is deceptive because he's second or third build in this movie. And yet, what does he have? Four scenes, Kyle? Yeah, he's not on much. I think he's a, na- he's a name grab at this point because he's so big. And he plays his role well, right? And essentially what he is, is he's a handler of a spy for the resistance. And so he's kind of directing this young man from a from a I'm assuming it's the town over or the next town, whatever, to spy on the village, spy on the German army as they're advancing, and then give him intelligence that he can bring to the larger resistance. I found this to be a, a very well-told story, and I enjoyed it. My only complaint about this movie is that. I decided I was going to be watching it as I was filling in the box office information on our boy Michael Sheen. And so I typed into my YouTube TV search, Resistance, and I started watching a movie with Jesse Eisenberg for about 35 minutes (laughs) while I was waiting for Michael Sheen to show up. (laughs) It's another like Nazi movie, isn't it? It's another Nazi movie. Yep. Couldn't find the budget for this movie, so I had to do some homework. And then I found this article, and it summarized the movie in the first paragraph. And I realized that I had been watching the wrong movie for about 30 minutes. <laughs> Dude, brutal. It was. Was it good? Was the 30 minutes of the other one better? No. No? Okay. I did, not, I did not enjoy the other movie. But I will say, this article is fascinating. 
Because what I found out was that this is based on a book that a small group of people were so impassioned about that they took it upon themselves to get this movie made. And 75% of this budget, which is $3.2 million, which is nothing, came from 85 different private investors with sums ranging from $8,000 to $265,000. The main producers of this movie, basically, at, they approached the author of the book, and he's like, yeah, if you can raise a half million dollars, I'll let you, I'll let you guys be producers on this film. And they're like, got you. So then they went and raised $3.2 million. I found out, and it resonated with me after watching the movie, is that because this movie was privately funded, the director and the, and the guy who wrote the book, they were able to protect their vision of this movie and not have to worry about what studios thought. They didn't have to worry about what major investors were thinking. So from the roots up, this was really a passion project. And, and I looked for some interviews with Sheen regarding this role, and I couldn't find any, but I'd, I'd be curious to know what drew him to play this role. To me, it was a really well-crafted movie and a well-told story. And it makes 100% sense after learning that this movie was basically privately fundraised by fans of this book and of this story. It's not a movie I would typically like and enjoyed finding out more about this particular film. You're on the critic's side. This is what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. On the critic's side of the gap. You know, a Michael Sheen fan may not have liked it if he was only in the movie for a total of five minutes. But other than that, I don't know why fans would have thought poorly of this movie. 16% from fans. Pretty low. It's incredibly low. Yeah. So I'm definitely on the side of the critics, and, and I enjoyed it. I'm glad you found value in a case. Yeah, man. Well, we're going to crush the, the last 11 years, of it, which are busy. I will say it's, he hasn't slowed down much in the last 11 years, now that we're through our reviews. So first and foremost, the last Twilight movie, Breaking Dawn Part 2 in 2012, and then the project we mentioned very early in the episode, which was The Gospel of Us. He plays the teacher, which from my understanding, he did a 72-hour live play in his town, and this was the cinematic recreation of it, of that particular play that they did, which involved starting on the beach and being crucified, essentially. <laughs> I saw a, a Graham Norton interview where he talked about this, and it said he was a little worried about what it would come out as, because... It's not a documentary. It's a dramatic reinterpretation of that 72-hour play throughout the whole community. So I thought that was an interesting pet project for him to take on there in the early 2010s. Yeah. Uh, But the big TV show there, the one that kind of climbs to the top of his IMDb, is his role as Dr. Masters in Masters of Sex from 2013 to 2016. He was in 46 episodes alongside Lizzie Kaplan and Allison Janney, who we've covered, and this seems to be the the show that he's most known for. Yeah, this is a fun show. I remember watching the first season back in 2013, and it's basically he plays a doctor who is thought of to like have sort of sparked the sexual revolution. And yeah, he, he and Lizzie Kaplan are awesome in this show. Around this time is where he really starts to ramp up his charity work. And I found a really funny picture. So he actually, again, is a very talented soccer player. And there is a charity called soccer aid which is an annual charity event it's like celebrity soccer match that takes place at wembley you know one of the biggest stadiums in england uh, and it's actually raised like 38 million dollars in aid for unicef wow but it's him and mike myers and they are 
they're not half-assing it. They are really playing hard against each other. It's a pretty funny photo. I remember watching the movie Professor Marston and the Wonder Women about that Professor Marston and how all the early work he did on sexuality led to why Wonder Woman was created the way it was created. Did like they ever like cross the streams without those two individuals that in the show Masters of Sex? Do you know? No, I, I don't think they did. This was certainly it's it's based on you know the real life of you know Masters and Johnson, but I don't think there's a I don't think there's a massive crossover. I think these guys are after. Okay, understood. Masters of Sex, I believe, is begins in like the mid fifties when America was still pretty prude, I would say. And I think their teachers, I want to say they were at like somewhere in the Midwest. I can't remember. University of Chicago, maybe. Washington University. Washington University. So St. Louis. Yep. Yeah. And they, they revolutionize independent sexual thinking in the United States. Those two are thought of as like being the, uh, the founders of the sexual revolution in the United States in the mid fifties. Adventurer, Curse of the Midas Box. Play charity a role alongside Lena Headey. When I was doing my research, I found a um, article from Wales Online. The title is "Will the Midas Box Spell Box Office Gold for Three Welsh Actors?" And the short answer is absolutely not, because this movie was a colossal bomb. It was budgeted for fifteen million, and it pulled in a hundred and twenty-eight thousand. And only 6,000 in the United States box office. So, jeez. In the United States, this movie did not do well. A uh, reviewer, Gabe Toro, talked about this in his article. And basically what he indicated was that there were a group of European investors that were trying to answer the Harry Potter franchise. And they were trying to create a franchise of their own. And they thought this would be the movie. So they just spent money just hand over fist trying to create the next franchise. Just too many creative influences guiding the project. And it ended up really sucking. Stop trying to make fetch happen. That's what I say. Yeah. Sometimes you hear these like investment strategies. And even though, you know, these are like wildly successful people with a ton of money, you just like, if I was in that room, I'd be like, this is a stupid idea. (laughs) Yeah. You think you're going to beat Harry Potter? It's like, more sold books than the Bible. You think you're going to beat that? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Another dating anecdote. Good grief. He's no longer with Rachel McAdams in 2013. He starts dating Sarah Silverman, of all people, from 2014 to 2018. That is not who I would think was going to be on the Michael Sheen bingo card for dating, but by golly, it was. She rules, man. I know. She's hilarious. She's sexy. Yeah, she's a. am a fan of hers for sure. <clears throat> Witty. She's the best. There's an awkward interview with him and Jimmy Kimmel where they're talking about her because Jimmy Kimmel used to date her too. Yeah. And so he's asking like, oh, did you meet her parents? Like asking just really awkward questions that I don't think an ex should ask. <laughs> Guy on, a, on an interview, but hey, bravo to Michael Sheen for do, doing it with Grace. Yeah, man. What did he do to fuck up with Rachel McAdams? That's the real question. Maybe Rachel McAdams got a little aggressive and a little crazy after doing the... Uh third season of true detective that was the worst season and it just threw him for a loop maybe i don't know i'm grasping at straws boys if she's crazy then i'm crazy that's fine (laughs) um all right so seven days in hell have you guys seen seven days in hell the hbo mockumentary it's fantastic it's so good i love it i've never seen it before 
it's what 40 minutes long and it's about that an epic tennis match he plays caspian a very creepy british like commentator tv host and he's so good at it it's honestly off-putting you know sandberg's and the whole the whole project follows this formula but he's got a great way of just kind of in cruise control telling a story normally and then it just gets completely fever dream absurd for about 30 seconds and then it's back to normal like like nothing happened and the whole the whole project feels that way it's great that scene with the streakers where there's a female streaker that comes out there on to the court and andy samper proceeds to have sex with her for a long time (laughs) and then a male streaker comes out And he proceeds to have sex with him for a while. And then they both come out and he proceeds to have a threesome with both of them on the court. (laughs) That's great. That's awesome. Isn't his opponent getting like annoyed and frustrated, like trying to get the breath to do something? Yeah. But I'm telling you, Michael Sheen plays this creepy fucking Brit who is just all over the characters and it's off-putting. He's so good at it. I hate it. Shout out. Shout out to Sheen on that. Nocturnal Animals 2016, alongside Laura Linney, plays Carlos. I don't remember his role in, in the slightest. Yeah, I don't either, and that's probably because the other performances in this movie are so good. Michael Shannon, fucking Aaron Taylor uh, Johnson, Amy Adams. Amy Adams. Yeah. yeah, everybody else is so good. So he and Laura Linney are very much like side characters in this story. But Passengers, he's pretty much third build as Arthur, the, uh, the robot. Um, who meets and greets Chris Pratt once he's found out he woke up way, way too early on this interstellar flight and then proceeds to wake up Jennifer Lawrence. Was his character kind of an ode to the bartender in The Shining? Not a bad point. I don't know. Probably. See the thread? His character in Passengers, I mean, it's kind of scary, right? Like, you don't know it, but you feel like it's behind something. And I always felt that same way with the uh, bartender in The Shining. He's got like the red coat like Lloyd does in The Shining as well. Yep. It's a great point. I've only seen Passengers once and I don't really recall liking it. I don't think a lot of people liked it. <laughs> I think it is fair to say that that is a is definitely an ode to uh, to Lloyd in, in The Shining as the ghost bartender, basically. Yeah, it was a movie that had a lot of hype, huge budget and marketing put behind it. I don't think it met any anybody's expectations, unfortunately. Yep. No. The movie is not bad because of Michael Sheen. Like a, he's perfectly competent role as the robot. So following up Seven Days in Hell with just like ridiculousness, then you have Michael Bolton's big sexy Valentine's Day special with Maya Rudolph, which has even more ridiculousness. And this is the character that I was referencing last week. I was trying to do it in a coy way of his character's Carl Flossie, who's training Michael Bolton to basically do a song and dance number and he has a cigarette in his mouth the entire time and he's just verbally berating Bolton and the dancers and it is it's fucking hilarious. Have you guys seen this? No, but it's got unbelievable reviews. It's a it's technically the highest critic score. It's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, it's a, it's a small role. I like that he has the cigarette hanging the whole time. The whole time. Why are we walking past the guitar? Just to fuck with the audience. <laughs> fuck with them. <laughs> How do you actually know punks will show up? <laughs> As a former smoker, that's impressive to uh, to have that much lung capacity screaming with a cigarette in his mouth. I would say that. <laughs> yeah, man. I, as soon as I saw that clip, 
forever ago when I watched it for the Maya episode. I was like, holy fuck, I gotta watch more of Michael Shane's stuff. That's hilarious. It's just a minute and a half, but I mean, he got his money's worth. I love Michael Bolton. Well, I should have to change my name for that no talent ass clown. <laughs> He's the one who sucks. <laughs> I told those French Packers I like Michael Bolton's music. <laughs> the full circle with more Ron Livingston. Look at us. Simpsons 2017. I, I saw the clip. It's basically him and Lizzie Kaplan playing their characters from Masters of Sex. The pop culture impact of that show is that they their characters appear on, on The Simpsons. Pretty cool. Apostle 2018. It's a, a Netflix film that I had low expectations going into, but I, I rewatched it pretty darn good, even the second time. Yeah, I really liked it. Dan Stevens is the lead. Michael Sheen plays a cult leader on this little island that Dan Stevens went to to try to save someone. Just good actors, and a re- actually, I felt like it was a unique, compelling story. I don't know about you, Case. Like kind of a genre bender, right? It kind of took on the early, like, not orthodox, but like the very zealous religious cults and religious factions. And it also had this very unexpected, like, supernatural or and kind of earthy. Yeah, yeah. Thing going on. I thought it was also made really well in terms of like the styling. I agree. And because it was early 19, early 20th century, it was 1905. It was when isolated island. So it had some vibes like the witch, but not nearly as like intentionally dark as the witch, Robert Eggers. So I recommend it. For sure. This movie was filmed near his hometown or in his hometown. And I believe it was filmed in like a park that he grew up across like the street from okay being basically a, a home home court advantage for him in this movie uh I, I bet was a really fun experience and then final saga or entry into the uh, dating world of michael sheen is he had started dating anna lundberg in 2019 still with her he's had two children with her and she's a swedish actress seems to have settled down now so he's he's got three kids um with, with two different women 2019, a movie that we, I don't think we've ever like substantively talked about, but just keeps coming up because people we cover keep showing up in it is How to Build a Girl. Uh, he played Dr. Freud alongside Chris O'Dowd and Emma Thompson. The Good Fight plays Roland Blum. In that show, he was in one season of it, seven episodes in 2019, alongside Gary Cole. And I watched some clips of it, and he plays a very eccentric lawyer that apparently was modeled off like a combo of Roy Cohn and Roger Stone. Interesting. Holy fuck, you guys, if you haven't seen it, you should check, just check out, like, there's, like, a 10-minute thing of just, I think it's it's clipped in there, you can watch it, but it's 10 minutes of his character, and it almost makes me want to watch the show, because his character is just off the walls nuts. Cool. Caught my eye. Caught my eye. Another big cr- Munson crossover, Doolittle 2020, alongside Craig Robinson, Rami Malek, Emma Thompson, um, he plays Dr. Mudfly, basically the nemesis to uh, D- Dr. Doolittle in this one. I had the pleasure of reviewing this one for the Rami Malek episode, <laughs> I believe. I remember that. <laughs> but the, towards the end, the tail end of his career to modern day, this is where he's done a lot more television. So up until the point he's done a lot of theater early in his career, then a lot of film. Now it's a lot of recurring characters. So between yeah. 2019 and 22, not including The Good Fight, he's done five other recurring character roles, including on Prodigal Son, Good Omens, Sandman. Um, I know Good Omens is one that that people tend to associate with him quite a bit in that Heaven and Hell show. 
So I, you know, when you guys said we we're covering him, I was like, oh, I don't know who that is. And then I look him up and this is a show that I had watched in its entirety only because my wife put it on one day and we sat down and we watched the whole show in a day. Um, it's very good and he's great in it. He plays an angel named uh, Azia Raphael and he's supposed to be the angel who guards Earth from hell when the end of times comes. The person on hell's side's name's Crowley, and they end up just like kind of becoming friends throughout because they they know of each other, <laughs> and they end up becoming like best friends. And it's now like them real- realizing that they enjoy Earth, and they're like, oh, so we should probably just stop like the destruction of Earth since you and I like like hanging out here. It's heavily implied that they're gay, but because they weren't put on earth for reproductive reasons they don't have those desires um but like in the book because it's based on a book i looked it up in the book it's like super duper clear that they're gay together but in the show it's not uh but he's great in this he's very funny he finds out one of the reasons that he loves earth so much is because of how delicious the food is compared to heaven he owns an antique bookstore and it's like, it's fun. I get to read about stuff I actually lived through since he's been alive, since the creation of man. Um, they also do a bunch of funny things like Francis McDormand plays God and Brian Cox is the devil. It's it's pretty good. I've heard really good things about the show. So it's it's good to hear from somebody I like. You're not like a random critic online or something. But the writing is funny and the actors are great. I know. What is that? David Tennant that plays Crowley? Yep. And those two, I feel like, are two peas in a pod. I've seen them on interviews all over the place. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad that somebody has seen one of these shows that he's done recently. Because he's done a bunch. But to kind of round things out, I mean, James alluded to him doing a lot of philanthropic work. The other thing I noted, looking into his background, he's an honorary fellow, or has an honorary doctorate or something, from five different universities. And he's narrated like 10 audiobooks. Um, throughout his career too to to kind of go into james's point he's done so much by 2020 he's like i'm just donating my money that i make now because i'm good i'm chill and he's uh he's done pretty well for himself so we've reached the the top of the mountain and this is where rigby takes us through some potential top performances from tv overmind which we've used before it's actually his five best roles and it's only film and it's not numerically ranked five movies when is it from? It doesn't actually say. The fact that I agree with most on this list, I'm going to keep it. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Five rolls. I'm going to start out with Seven Days in Hell. Uh, nope. Dang it. <laughs> that would have been fun. This list sucks. <laughs> fucking sucks. I'll go with the obvious one, Frost Nixon. Yep. Are there any Twilights on this list? Please. Nope. <laughs> Please no. I'm going to say, is Tony Blair, are the three combined? Or does it point out a specific movie? Believe it or not, there is no Tony Blair on this list. Oh, really? Yeah. Inter- that opens up some possibilities, though. That's interesting. Okay. Yep. Unthinkable. Nope. Thinkable didn't make it. How about The Damned United? That's got to be on there. Yes. Okay. I agree. The top five are. Midnight in Paris make it? Nope. Okay. That's not as big of a role. It's not a lead. So I get that. Michael Bolton's Big Sexy Valentine's Day special. <laughs> oh, unfortunately. But after watching that, that possibly should be on there. <laughs> so this must have been made before Seven Days in Hell and Michael Bolton. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's an older list. <laughs> <laughs> How about Music Within? Nope. Passengers. Yes, Passengers. Okay, good job with that. Stop trying to get me to watch Passengers. <laughs> <laughs> Rigby, of the other two, how many of them are biopic? How many of them are real people versus 
fiction. None. None of them. So Underworld is one of them. Yeah. Yep. Alice in Wonderland. Nope. We're missing one, eh? Yeah, this next one's a shocker, and that's just because his role is not that big in it. Blood Diamond. Blood Diamond, Craig. What? No. Why would they do that? They're trying to get on the uh, good side of Michael Bay. There are like 10 roles I'd pick over Blood Diamond from his career. Maybe you need to rewatch Blood Diamond. I did. <laughs> Maybe he had a bunch of like background roles like sneaking around that you didn't even notice before. I'd pick Dirty Filthy Love. <laughs> I'd pick Bright Young Things. I'd pick Heartlands. That's my goal, Kyle. I gotta, I gotta find stuff that keeps you on your toes, right? Right. No Tony Blair, but they picked Blood Diamond. Throw this list out. Oh, this list. No Tony Blair. So if we had to create our own top three, what would we put up? Frost Nixon one. Frost Nixon one for me, for sure. Yeah. Which I think you guys knew that. Maybe Tony Blair two, like the combo of the three roles. I'd go Dame United two, just because I really like that movie. Yeah. I think it's the fact that, I don't know, it's so impressive that he's played Tony Blair in three different things. That's that's like unheard of. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a huge Dame United fan, so I'll go two, and then I'll do his performance in The Queen at number three. Yeah, I'd round my top three out with Blood Diamond. Fuck off. <laughs> so hard. It's, it's hard to pick a top three because you've got Unthinkable as an option there. You've got Frost Nixon. You've got the Tony Blair. You've got Dirty Filthy Love. You've got Music Within. You've got Heartlands. You can make a case for a bunch of Masters of Sex. Obviously, is one big one there that no one talked about either. So that might be his number two, if we're being honest. Masters of Sex. Yeah, considering the the impact of it. So Munson Meter, what we do, we rate every actor on a scale of zero to hundred based on a variety of factors. They could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, their acting range, awards footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedic chops box office success or lack thereof in anything else that matters to us as Munson's. So this time we will start with Rigby. Yeah, so I'm a big Michael Sheen fan. Obviously his his role in Frost Nixon, one of my favorites of the last 20 years, one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years. Um, and yeah, he's we've talked a lot about the Tony Blair stuff and just look at his, if you look at his theater um, background and, you know, the plays he's been in and obviously you know the when you get your start in theater you're most likely have a pretty good job of a pretty easy job of translating it to the film world so which he has done and he's also in 30 rock and he's just a he's just a really enjoyable presence when he's on screen i don't know about you guys but i'm a huge fan of his so he's gonna get a high score for me he's gonna get an 83 wow it's a good score this was a different experience for me than kristen shawl i said kristen shawl she is who i thought she was and I did not let her off the hook. Um, Michael Sheen, I did not know a ton about. I'd seen more than I thought I had, but I still hadn't dug into a lot of his British work. I fell in love with Michael Sheen by the time I was done prepping for this episode. I give him a lot of props for his career in British theater, starting his own production company, and all the awards recognition he's had. The success there can't be ignored. Uh, His dating history is bananas to me i think it just that blew me away when i started to figure out who he's been dating over the years because i was like he's not a stereotypically like great looking guy but he's a charismatic dude who clearly knows how to talk to women and he's done very well on the dating side so i get to give him cred there his pop culture is interesting for me because it's limited here because if you go to like Michael S's, Michael Shannon in the American landscape is who's going to pop up first when you do Google searches, when you do YouTube searches. But Michael Sheen is huge overseas, playing Tony Blair, playing all these Kenneth Williams, playing all these 
massive uh, Brian Clow, all these massive like British people. Uh, it's clear his pop culture impact if we were a British show would be max, right? So I'm kind of like cutting the difference here because he's not as big here, but he obviously internationally has huge appeal. Um, you know, he's got the major roles in huge box office franchises like Underworld and Twilight, but he has supplemented that with a lot of indie films that we talked about that I really like too. And the fact he's narrated so much, making, making a career playing real life characters and his little niche stuff in like seven days in hell and, and the Michael Bolton special, like everything he does, he impressed the hell out of me. So I'm like you Rigby, I'm giving him a pretty high score. I'm giving him an 84. Hell yeah. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Hey, don't speak too soon. Don't speak too soon. All right. Case, you know, you guys have said a lot of the, a lot of the things that I, I, I do like about him. I'm not as big of a fan of him as you guys are. One of the things that has grown more and more important to me in my evaluation of these performers is their acting name recognition. Everybody that I told this to was like, Sheen, like Martin Sheen? I'm like, no, it's Michael Sheen. There's no relation. So it was very difficult to kind of place him. The name recognition for me is a little low. While I appreciated a lot of his movies and, and the roles that he takes on, they're not necessarily roles in films that resonate really with me. I would not have sought out the Apostle if I hadn't heard him in an interview and talking about the fact he's filming in his hometown and, and we're watching him for this episode. I definitely wouldn't have watched Resistance, both this one and the Jesse Eisenberg one. I do think he's super talented and, and I do enjoy his roles, but... You know, he's going to come up short with me only because it's just not in my wheelhouse of my interest. So I'm going to give him a 72. James, round us out. So I preface this with saying I didn't get to watch that many movies of his as I'm lying on my floor, slowly dying from breathing in mold spores. And so I will take out my agony on him, unfortunately. But the movies that I did see of his, I did enjoy. I think Frost Nixon is great. I didn't realize that I had seen uh, Good Omens, and I thought he was very funny in that. I think he has the range. I agree with Case. I don't think the name recognition is there, but maybe that's just because we're Americans. He's like a really good person. I think his uh, charity work is pretty wild. I appreciate someone uh, who is realizing like you know what 15 million is like i'm pretty fucking rich i you know i got everything i want i might as well just give everything from here on out to other people who need it i think that's totally admirable uh but unfortunately like you know the the underworld movies suck the twilight movies suck and i unfortunately had seen those and so when i looked these up i was like oh this guy stinks and i didn't realize how talented he was until way late in the game and i had already only seen about two movies of his Unfortunately, I will be giving him a 63. Damn, Rigby, how does that make you feel? You know, it's a fair score. Can't criticize it. I don't. We don't score shame on this podcast. We don't. We all know that. We say that. Unless we are uh, shaming Cam for throwing Haysbert 132. Yeah, that's pretty egregious. Well, that's, that's a gap right there. So with that gives Michael Sheen a 75.5, which puts him in 30th place. Between Angelica Houston and Keith David. Hold on. What place? 30th. Yeah, that number sounds familiar. Right on the dot. Right on the dot. I think James was do- doing the numbers there. Bro, I, the I, I promise you I was not. I promise you I was not. That's hilarious. That's the exact same box office score. 30. Isn't that two episodes in a row where we did that? Uh, or was it 
We did that with Torturo? I think we did it with Torturo. I think it was with Torturo. Wow. I think this is a perfect example of Americans and Michael Sheen. Before, if I hadn't watched much of his stuff, I'd probably be in the low 70s. But I think the more you watch his stuff, the it's almost like you get an extra point every time you watch a new project with him because you start to f- figure out how talented yeah. he is. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising to me, but it, the fact I watch so much, I'm like, holy shit, this guy is just so, so... And he can do anything. He's He can play any type of role. I just find his presence to be very enjoyable. I just... He's one of those guys that, like, you just get excited when you see him on screen. I don't disagree with you. I just, like... Not my wheelhouse. Uh, James, what does he have coming? So he's got a TV show called Best Interests coming out, and they won't let me look at what it's about on IMDb. Though I said, Naya, you owe us money if you want to know more about this. He has a movie called Heart of Darkness, which is based on a novel. Um, Captains a leaky steamboat up the River Congo in search of mysterious figures. It's him, James Norton, and Andrew Scott. It looks like it might be animated, which is pretty cool. Um, So it's just his voice. And then there's a movie called The Price of Admission, which Michelle Monaghan and Jeff Goldblum, where he plays a playwright in the middle of a midlife crisis. We've got some things. Yeah, I like Monaghan. She's really good. Yeah, I think of the three, I think that's what I'm most excited for. I like that cast a lot. See when they hit. Next podcast is going to hit on September 22nd of 2022. Spooky number of twos there. Uh, we're bringing back Chip Hessenflow. Chip! Nice! Oh, Brother Hessenflow. We're going to throw a bunch of Chip's old war medals over the bridge <laughs> on that episode. But uh, he was here with us for James Marsden, Emma Thompson, and Matthew Broderick. I love when Chip is on. He's he's great. Oh, he's phenomenal. He's got that great voice. Oh deep sexy voice he the wheel selected between these five actors and we'll talk a little bit about what we like what we dislike so we got jake gyllenhaal lucy punch annie mcdowell saoirse ronan and margo martindale nice what do we think gyllenhaal or margo's back in the list weren't you guys dunking on andy mcdowell a couple weeks ago yeah dude that's the one to avoid (laughs) after yeah we were her performance in the movie i was covering I, I've watched a c- couple movies with her that I absolutely despise. So yeah, I think Jill and Hall or Ronan are the the two favorites for me. There, totally agree. Totally agree with Rigby. I think those two are great. I want Margot. You know, I want Margot Martindale. The month before it, we got we gotta get Warren. She's so back good. If we do Margot. Uh, yeah, you gotta gotta get Warren back. You gotta force him to watch Margot Martindale stuff because she is awesome in everything that she does. I want a book report on Margot Martindale. <laughs> if we did Ronan, you'd get to talk about Little Women again, James. So that's exciting. <laughs> Dude, she's amazing. Sarsha Ronan's an unbelievable actress. And you know what? She's just like gets nominated for Academy Awards as young. And like you hear nothing bad about this girl. And you'd, we talk about that uh, that movie that Stanley Tucci got nominated for an Oscar for too, where he kills her. Lovely Bones. The Lovely Bones. Yes, Lovely Bones. Yeah, I want Margot because I want to talk about Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story plays the mom i want to talk about uh a movie that came out a couple years ago on prime that i really really liked blow the man down big fan of that and i'd just be really interested in digging into her life wouldn't be mad at shredding andy mcdowell a bunch more sure she has some other stinkers on her resume she's got groundhog day too oh that's right she's in groundhog day probably the big one for her right 
Yep, that's the big one, I would say. I don't know what else you have. A lot of romantic comedies. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yep. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Great movie. That is good. Okay. Forgot about that one. I don't know if I know who Lucy Punch is. <laughs> we always talk about it being like the crazy blonde in every movie she's in. Yeah, she's like... Yes. Yeah, she's... Now, I, I remember you saying that because I remember saying, I don't know who she is. That, that makes sense. Yep. I'm I'm Jill and Holler Martindale, personally. Those are my be my two picks. Sersha I like, but she's young. I'd rather let her go do some other stuff before we cover her, personally. Who would Chip pick? Who's... You know, he's done Marsden, Emma Thompson, and Matthew Broderick. Jill and Hall. Owl. Gyllenhaal, but also, I was going to say, yeah, sneaky Andy McDowell. All right. Well, Chip doesn't decide. We don't decide. Warren doesn't decide. The wheel decides. We'll see what happens. We know Warren doesn't decide because he would definitely not decide <laughs> Martin Day. Yeah, that's for sure. Wouldn't even be an option. Well, we don't have a guest plug this week, so we'll see Chip next time. As always, you can find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can find us on Instagram, Munson's at The Movies. You can email us, Munson's at The Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Michael Sheen? If you want your grandchildren to remember you as being something other than the dirty beggars you once were, you're going to have to work and change. Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? Hey, no bunts! No bunting! Nobody gonna bunt? I'll knock it to the fucking moon. Yeah.